Hello, and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, February 2nd. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. We'll start with the weather. Today will be rather cloudy and mild with a high of 50 degrees. Tonight will be cloudy and misty with a low of 38 degrees. And Saturday, there may be a passing shower with a high of 49 degrees. And now we turn to local and state news. Iowa GOP unveils plan to eliminate income tax. Tom Barton reports from Des Moines. Iowa House and Senate Republicans rolled out a new proposal to provide a glide path to eliminating the state individual income tax. Representative Bobby Kaufman, a Republican from Wilton, and Senator Dan Dawson, Republican from Council Bluffs, filed legislation Thursday that would put Iowa on a path to eliminate the individual income tax and protect the tax relief measures Republicans have passed. Kaufman and Dawson lead the Tax Writing Ways and Means Committee in the House and Senate. We have heard time and time again from our colleagues in both the House and Senate, as well as Iowans across the state, that we want to get Iowa to a zero income tax rate, and we believe these proposals will responsibly get us to that point and set our state up for continued success and stability for years to come, Kaufman said. Senate Study Bill 3141 would accelerate current income tax cuts lawmakers passed in 2022 that gradually reduces rates until tax year 2026, when most Iowa workers will pay a 3.9% state income tax. The bill would lower the rates to 3.65% by tax year 2027. It would It also would have Iowa Public Employees Retirement System start managing the state's more than $3.5 billion taxpayer relief fund. Profits earned from investing that money would be used to ratchet down the state income tax rate over time. Under the proposal, the new trust fund that would be created would receive an initial $2.6 billion transfer from the taxpayer relief fund. It would have an oversight board and contract through IPERS to invest those dollars. Once the trust becomes operable, 5% a year would be transferred to the new income tax elimination fund used to help lower and eventually eliminate the income tax, while assisting with budget stabilization as rates are cut, the two lawmakers told reporters. If the trust fund has sufficient dollars and sales growth, hits a certain trigger, the income tax rates will be automatically reduced. We're doing something that everyday Iowans do for their retirement. Everyday businesses here in the state do, Dawson told reporters. We're using the money, growing it for something bigger. Kaufman said the proposal responsibly achieves Republicans' long-term goal to eliminate the individual income tax and put Iowa on a stronger path to prosperity. Dawson said the plan ensures state government can meet its spending obligations even as the state reduces income tax revenue. Ultimately, it's a responsible glide path to zero, Dawson said, as opposed to some massive sales tax increase or eliminating a bunch of tax exemptions out there. Both lawmakers, though, described the proposal as a long-term plan meant to be a starting point for continued conversations. How quickly this bill happens, this is the beginning, Kaufman said. 
And so this will happen as quickly as people are ready for it. And I think you'll find out as this gets talked about, you're going to find a high appetite for Iowans to want to do that. Kaufman and Dawson also plan to advance a proposed constitutional amendment, Senate Joint Resolution 14, that would require a two-thirds vote rather than a simple majority in the legislature to raise any state tax. Lawmakers considered but failed to advance the constitutional amendment last year, noting this year it's become a priority of the two chairmen. In the near term, Republican lawmakers say they're focused this session on passing legislation accelerating the already approved income tax cuts. They said they intend to file a bill this spring to do just that, but are waiting on a March report on state tax revenue and may use some elements of the tax reduction plan Governor Reynolds introduced three weeks ago. Reynolds, in her annual Condition of the State Address, called for accelerating state income tax cuts, landing at a 3.5% rate for most Iowa workers next year. The proposal would reduce Iowans' state income taxes and thus limit future state revenue growth by $3.8 billion over the first five years. Republicans say the state can afford more tax reductions with a $2.1 billion general fund budget surplus projected to grow to $3.1 billion in the next fiscal year, full emergency accounts, and $3.7 billion in the taxpayer relief fund. Iowa lost $57 million in tax revenue in 2022 through 23 and will lose close to $5 billion over the next five years about 7.8% of the state's general fund, according to a report by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. State policymakers nationwide have embarked on a tax-cutting spree over the past three years, using the cover of temporary budget surpluses stemming from robust federal aid in response to COVID-19 and the economic recovery that followed, the report states. The tax cuts, most of which are both permanent and tilted toward wealthy households and corporations, will weaken state revenues by large and growing amounts over time, limiting these states' ability to maintain support for schools and other vital public services, or make new investments that can strengthen the economy and promote opportunity. House and Senate Democratic leaders said they are concerned that further income tax cuts would disproportionately benefit the wealthy, while leaving hundreds of thousands of Iowans who pay no income taxes with no benefits. House Democrats on Thursday, meanwhile, unveiled a legislative package to lower costs and raise wages for Iowans. The package of bills would gradually raise Iowa's minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2026, clear the list of more than 20,000 Iowans with disabilities on the Home and Community-Based Services waiver wait list to get services like personal care, food preparation, home repairs, and modifications so they can stay in their homes. Doing so would cost $69 million, according to the Nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency. It could be paid for with unspent federal COVID relief dollars said Representative Josh Turek, a Democrat from Council Bluffs, but also would require additional money to provide services since Iowa faces a shortage of direct care workers. 
It would also make a one-year pilot program that allows child care workers to apply for state child care assistance for their own children, permanent and available statewide. Provide a subsidy for child care workers who need child care for their own kids so they can afford to stay on the job. And expand and extend Iowa's tax-free holiday in August from two days to two weeks. Add school and art supplies, instructional materials, and musical instruments to the list of tax-free exemptions. And raise the cap on clothing items from $100 to $250 so Iowans can purchase work uniforms, work boots, and other items. House Minority Leader Jennifer Conferst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, said the bills will lower costs, raise wages, and leave Iowans with more money in their pockets. What we're proposing is what Iowans tell us they want, Conferst told reporters. What Republicans are proposing is what special interests tell them that they want. Judge approves voter rights settlement. Nick Hytrek reports from Omaha. A federal judge has approved an agreement between two Indian tribes and Thurston County that gives Native American voters the majority in five of seven County Board of Supervisors districts. Chief U.S. District Judge Robert Rossiter, Jr. called the agreement fair, reasonable, and adequate in a January 26 order that provides for the settlement of a lawsuit in which the Winnebago and Omaha tribes and several individuals said the county and the Board of Supervisors had violated the Voting Rights Act with its previous district map in 2022. The settlement reasonably resolves difficult voting rights issues in a manner that is fair to all parties, Rossiter said in his ruling. The settlement includes a new district map, which the Thurston County Board of Supervisors has approved for implementation in this year's election. The map will be in place until after the next census in 2030, when population shifts could require the redrawing of districts. The tribes and nine individuals sued Thurston County, the seven-county board members, and the county clerk in January 2023 in U.S. District Court in Omaha, saying a district map approved in 2022 violated the Voting Rights Act because it did not provide Native voters a fair chance to elect candidates of their choice in at least four of the seven districts. In November... The parties reached an agreement on a redrawn district map. Lawyers for the tribe said they are pleased to have the agreement approved. This is the third time the county has been sued under the Voting Rights Act, and the third time the county has had to take court-ordered corrective action. Hopefully this is the last time this has to be done. I believe it is in line with what the tribes had asked for during the redistricting process, said Mike Carter a lawyer with the Native American Rights Fund Civil Rights Organization. <clears throat> the tribes and county agree the new map complies with the Voting Rights Act. Thurston County Board Chairman Glenn Meyer said the agreement was reached amicably. The lawsuit originated from a perceived problem the tribes had with the redistricting map adopted by the Thurston County Board of Supervisors after the 2020 census. Meyer said in a release statement. At that time, the board thoughtfully considered three maps developed by an independent contractor, as well as a redistricting map provided by the tribes, with one of the contractor maps eventually being selected. 
The tribes and county cooperated in developing a new map which addressed the concerns of both parties and resolved the issue. Natives make up 50.3% of the voting age population, compared with 43% of whites in Thurston County, which is home to both the Winnebago and Omaha Indian reservations. Because of their majority, the tribes said in the lawsuit, natives should have a legitimate chance to elect representatives in at least four districts, but the former plan gave them a clear majority in only three. Though natives had a slight majority in two other districts under the disputed map, the lawsuit said those districts were drawn purposely to take advantage of traditional low native voter turnout and ensure white politicians maintained control. The board currently has two native and five white members. The county denied the discrimination claims and argued that the map met Voting Rights Act requirements. The map was used in the 2022 election cycle, in which no native candidates ran in three of the four districts up for election. Under the newly approved settlement, natives now have a majority of voters in five districts. Natives will have majorities of 95% and 87% in districts that include Macy and Winnebago, respectively. Native majorities in the other three districts are 74%, 69% and 53%. In the remaining two districts, white voters have majorities of 94% and 85%. Terms of the settlement provide relief for our clients and allow them to elect candidates of their choice, said Ezra Rosenberg, a lawyer with Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, which also represented the tribes. The new district map does not displace any current supervisors from their districts, giving incumbents the chance to run for re-election in their present districts when their current terms are on the ballot this year or in 2026. The lawsuit was the third voting rights suit the tribes have filed against Thurston County. In 1978, the Justice Department sued the county over its at-large method of electing supervisors. A consent decree in that case resulted in the current seven-district format. A second lawsuit stemmed from redistricting after the 1990 census that diluted Native voting strength by not creating a third district in which Natives had an effective majority. County Attorney Laments Demoralizing Effect of Online Flack Sac County okayed $25,000 reward for David Schultz last week. Mason Doctor reports from Sac City, Iowa. The Sac County attorney on Thursday told the journal that the ongoing torrent of criticism, much of it online, directed at investigators in the search for missing Wall Lake, Iowa trucker David Schultz, has had a demoralizing effect on those involved. They're not robots, they're not without feelings, Sac County attorney Ben Smith said by phone Thursday. Schultz, a 53-year-old married father of 10-year-old twin boys, vanished before Thanksgiving. He was last heard from in last heard from in the early morning hours of November 21st, according to the Lakeview Police Department. Social media users have since taken a standoffish tone with law enforcement, including the Sac County Sheriff's Office on the case. In December, Sac County Sheriff Ken McClure lamented a whole bunch of keyboard detectives and Perry Masons out here, second-guessing the work of officers. Smith said that, in his experience, 
Few, if any, missing persons cases or cold cases have been pursued as tirelessly as Schultz's disappearance. I know probably about six or seven officers and investigators that didn't have a Thanksgiving, he said. They were working on this the whole time. I was one of them. The same for Christmas. A lot of time that normally would be spent with families was spent expending extra hours in searching, trying to find David. Last week, the Sac County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously to use $25,000 of American Rescue Plan funds for the reward for information leading to Schultz. That dollar figure, Smith said, was an amount the county felt it could comfortably allocate out of its Rescue Plan dollars. Smith said that, from his reading of the law and U.S. Treasury Department regulations, the county is permitted to use its American Rescue Plan funds in this manner. Municipalities have a fairly wide discretion in how they choose to use up to $10 million of these funds. Sac County received less than $1.9 million in total. I felt comfortable doing it, he said, adding, if it turns out I'm wrong, if it turns out that Sac County's wrong, the money's been allocated. It has not been spent. And we'll reevaluate that and make sure that we are following the law. Smith cautioned that the reward is not yet active due to legal and logistical complexities. He declined to offer any timeline for when the reward would be officially published. The Sac County Sheriff's Office, he said, has been working diligently to set up a process capable of facializing the intake of this information. Facilizing the intake of this information, I guess. Among the undecided matters, Smith said, are the wording of the reward announcement and the role, if any, of the third-party outfit known as Crime Stoppers in accepting tips. It's just not a straightforward task, he said of the reward. We have to be prepared to handle a large volume of incoming information. Sue to receive more than $1 million in federal funding. Dolly A. Butch reports from Sioux City. The Sioux Gateway Airport will receive significant federal funding from the fiscal year 2024 Airport Infrastructure Grants Program, according to a news release from Iowa Republican U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley. Sioux Gateway is one of 20 Iowa airports that are receiving a total of more than $15 million to modernize aging airport infrastructure and ensure safe and efficient travel throughout the state and nation. The U.S. Department of Transportation will administer the awards through its Airport Infrastructure Grants Program made possible by legislation backed by Grassley. Sioux Gateway will receive $876,150 for the construction of a new T-hanger for aircraft storage, maintenance, and service. Another $350,000 in federal funding will go toward the reconstruction of out-of-date taxi lane pavement. Iowa's airports move goods to market and help get people where they need to go. Keeping this critical infrastructure in top shape will strengthen Iowa's economy and ensure Iowan safety when they travel, Grassley said. I'm glad to see this significant investment put to good use in our communities. Additional Northwest Iowa airports receiving funding are Denison Municipal, Crawford County, $300,000 for the construction of a double pump fuel facility. Sioux County Regional, Sioux County, 
$123,118 for 23.95 acres of land adjacent to the airport property to use for future development. Esterville Municipal, Emmett County, $360,000 for sealing, crack repair, and joint filling to 4,800 feet of existing runway to extend the pavement's life. And finally, Arthur N. New Airport, Carroll County, $80,000 for the installation of replacement runway and identifier lights to make the airport more accessible through an improved approach to runway ends. Siouxland Chamber lobbies for priorities at Iowa Capitol. The group wants affordable housing, education, and child care. Kayla McCullough reports from Des Moines. Members of Siouxland's business community met with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and lawmakers in the state capitol on Thursday to advocate for actions to strengthen Iowa's workforce and increase opportunities for business development. The Siouxland Chamber of Commerce had a delegation of business leaders, education officials, and elected officials that met with local lawmakers, legislative leaders, and department heads in Des Moines. Barbara Sloniker, the Executive Vice President of the Siouxland Chamber, said the trip was a chance to meet with Iowa's leaders face-to-face and provide input on the legislation affecting Siouxland businesses. Some of the group's top priorities, Sloniker said, are improving affordable housing and child care options, addressing education and mental health care, and funding economic development opportunities. While we're saying things we like in bills, things we don't like in bills, we all know it's a process, she said, but it's important for our group to be here and say what we do and don't like, and say we're willing to help if you need suggestions, or here's why we don't like this and here's why we like that. The Chamber is supportive of legislative Republicans' efforts to lower Iowa's income taxes, Sloniker said. Reynolds proposed a bill to accelerate existing income tax cuts and implement a flat 3.5% income tax rate by 2025, and House and Senate leaders have proposed their own tax cut bill. Cutting the tax rate helps keep Iowa competitive with its bordering states like South Dakota, which has no income tax, Sloniker said. Obviously, we want to be prudent, but we are very thrilled about the way it's been going, and the trajectory is to keep lowering it, so that's a positive, she said, and I think the state will reap benefits. House Representative J.D. Scholten, a Democrat who represents Sioux City, said he met with the chamber group and was encouraged to hear that a number of the policies the chamber was advocating for, like expanding childcare and housing options for workers, were aligned with Democrats' priorities for the coming session. Democrats are in the minority in both the, pardon me, both the Iowa House and Senate. They just view this as a Sioux City issue, he said, and so that's where I'm looking at my colleagues across the aisle and saying, hey, let's tackle some of this stuff. And there's a lot coming at us this early in the session, but I think there's a lot of things that we can work on together. Sloniker said improving education opportunities in Iowa is a top priority for the chamber as it seeks to recruit a skilled and educated workforce. She said the group wants to expand the number of years non-native English speakers are taught English language learner classes in Iowa schools from five to seven years. 
We're trying to make Iowa be, again, top in the nation with education, starting with pre-K all through higher ed, she said. Chamber representatives discussed Governor Kim Reynolds' proposed bill to overhaul the area education agencies and special education instruction in Iowa with the Department of Education Director Mackenzie Snow, Sloniker said. The bill, which was met with skepticism from Republican lawmakers this week, would allow schools to opt out of the AEA's special education instruction and seek it from a third party and make a host of other changes to their operations. Sloniker said the Siouxland Chamber has not taken an official position on the bill, but that school districts in the area wanted the process to be slowed down. Another bill Sloniker said the Chamber is excited about is the bill to spend nearly $100 million on megasites, which are major economic development projects. The bill would direct tax initiatives to projects that are located on at least 250 acres, have at least a $1 billion investment, create high-paying jobs, and provide comprehensive benefits, and be engaged in manufacturing, biosciences, or research and development. The bill passed a House subcommittee last week. Sloniker said the program would allow the state to attract major projects that are currently going to other states that have more competitive incentives. We always want to be everyone's first choice to locate their business, she said. We know the quality of life here is great. We know the cost of living is low. So we just need to kind of get in the game. And now we turn to national and world news. From the Middle East... U.S. hints at a big response. Counterstrikes against Houthi rebels so far haven't deterred them. From Washington, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Thursday it's time to further disable Iran-backed militias that struck at U.S. forces and ships in the Middle East, and the U.S. is preparing to take significant action in response to the deaths of three U.S. service members in Jordan. For days, the U.S. hinted strikes are imminent. While the threat of retaliation for Sunday's deaths drove some militant groups to say they were stopping hostilities, as late as Thursday, Yemen's Houthi rebels attacked vessels and fired a ballistic missile at a Liberian-flagged container ship in the Red Sea. At this point, it's time to take away even more capability than we've taken in the past, Austin said Thursday. Previous U.S. strikes have not deterred the attacks. Since the war between Israel and Hamas militants broke out in October, Iranian-backed militant groups struck U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria at least 166 times with rockets, with rockets missiles, and one-way attack drones, drawing about a half-dozen U.S. counterstrikes on militant facilities in both countries. The U.S. military also carried out airstrikes targeting the Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. The U.S. attributes the attack on Tower 22 in Jordan to the Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella group of Iran-backed militias that includes the militant group Kataib Hezbollah. While Iran denies involvement, Austin said Thursday that how much Iran knew or didn't know, we don't know, but it really doesn't matter because Iran sponsors these groups. Austin said the Pentagon is still looking at the forensics of the drone that struck Tower 22, 
a secretive base in northeastern Jordan that's been crucial to the American presence in, nor in neighboring Syria. In the Red Sea, the Houthis fired on commercial and military ships almost 40 times since November. In the latest attack Thursday, they fired a ballistic missile at the MV Khoi, a Liberian-flagged container ship, U.S. Central Command said. The ship's management could not immediately be reached for comment. The Houthis did not claim responsibility for the assault. Also on Thursday, Central Command said it destroyed two more Houthi-fired drones. One overhead drone, fired at 5 a.m. in Yemen, was shot down in the Gulf of Aden. A few hours later, an uncrewed surface vehicle, a drone that travels through water, was determined to be an imminent threat and was struck in self-defense in the Red Sea, Central Command said. From Paris, farmers get some concessions. They object, pardon me, not from Paris, they object to energy and fertilizer costs, red tape, and cheap imports. From Brussels, farmers burned bales of hay, threw eggs and firecrackers at police, and wrested some promises of relief from European leaders on Thursday, the culmination of weeks of protests across the continent over excessive red tape and competition from cheap imports. Eager to reassure a key part of the electorate, and end disruptions in several cities, leaders at a European Union summit in Brussels showered the farmers with compliments and compassion, if few concrete proposals. In France, the government made significant concessions, enough that two major farmers' unions promised to suspend the chokehold their tractors placed on Paris for days. For weeks, farmers complained that it's becoming harder to make a decent living as energy and fertilizer costs surge because of Russia's war in Ukraine, more and cheaper farm imports enter the bloc, and climate change-fueled droughts, floods, or fires destroy crops. On Thursday, as thick smoke from burning bales of hay and tires hung over parts of the Belgian capital, security forces used water cannons to douse fires and keep a farmer from felling a tree on the steps of the European Parliament. But ahead of EU parliamentary elections in June, most leaders at the summit were keen to win over farmers, especially as populist and hard-right politicians latched on to their plight in recent weeks. Leaders welcomed the plan of the European Commission, the EU's executive branch, to shield farmers from cheap imports from Ukraine during wartime and allow farmers to use some land that was forced to lie fallow for environmental reasons. EU Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen also promised Thursday to prepare plans by the end of the month to cut reams of bureaucratic rules to make sure farmers can spend more time in their fields, not in their offices. In France, Prime Minister Gabriel Attal announced a new set of measures, including hundreds of millions of euros in aid and tax breaks, and also promised not to ban pesticides in France that are allowed elsewhere in Europe. In Brussels, many leaders also said they would not approve a trade deal with South American nations that is under consideration unless any imports would meet the same regulatory standards that EU farmers face a key demand from the sector. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, February 2nd on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Continuing with 
national and world news. Deaths continue to surge in Israel's Gaza offensive. Biden sanctions four Israeli settlers accused of West Bank violence. More than 27,000 people have been killed and 66,000 wounded by Israel's offensive in Gaza, the Hamas-controlled territory's health ministry said Thursday. The number of deaths has grown by more than 1,100 since the International Court of Justice in The Hague last week told Israel to do its best to prevent acts of genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. South Africa's foreign minister accused Israel of ignoring that ruling by the United Nations top court. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden issued an executive order Thursday that targets Israeli settlers in the West Bank who are accused of attacking Palestinians and Israeli peace activists in the occupied territory, imposing financial sanctions and visa bans in an initial round against four individuals. The penalties aim to block the four from using the U.S. financial system and bar American citizens from dealing with them. Also Thursday, Britain's Foreign Secretary David Cameron said his country could officially recognize a Palestinian state after a ceasefire in Gaza without waiting for the outcome of what could be years-long talks between Israel and the Palestinians on a two-state solution. European Union seals aid package for Ukraine. Russia claims plane was brought down by U.S.-made missiles. From Brussels, leaders of the 27 European Union countries sealed a deal Thursday to provide Ukraine with $54 billion in support for its war-ravaged economy after Hungary dropped weeks of threats to veto the measure. European Council President Charles Michel said the agreement locks in steadfast, long-term, predictable funding for Ukraine and shows the EU's determination to support their future, to support freedom. The aid package, about two-thirds loans and one-third grants, is not intended to help fight off Russia. Apart from supporting the economy and paying for rebuilding, it's also aimed at setting Ukraine up for future EU membership. Meanwhile, Ukraine claimed Thursday it used sea drones to sink a small Russian warship in the Black Sea, as Russian investigators alleged that a Russian military transport plane that crashed last month was brought down by two U.S.-made Patriot missiles fired by Kyiv's forces. Disinformation has been part of the grinding war, which marks its second anniversary on February 24th and it was not possible to independently verify either side's claims. Study finds COVID-19 shots 54% effective. From New York, the latest versions of COVID-19 vaccines were 54% effective at preventing symptomatic infection in adults, according to the first U.S. study to assess how well the shots work. The shots became available last year and were designed to better protect against more recent coronavirus variants. The CDC recommends the shots for everyone six months and older, though most Americans haven't gotten them. In Thursday's study, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention looked at 9,000 people who got tested for COVID-19 at CVS and Walgreens pharmacies, checking who tested positive and whether they got a new shot. The 54% finding is similar to what's been reported in other countries and for an earlier vaccine version, said Ruth Link-Gels of the CDC, 
the study's lead author. Marketer, drug maker, OK Opioid Settlements, an advertising agency that helped develop marketing campaigns for oxycodone and other prescription painkillers, and a drug maker announced separate agreements Thursday worth a total of $500 million to avoid going to trial on claims that they bore some responsibility for the nation's opioid crisis. Publicus Health, part of the Paris-based media conglomerate Publicus Group, agreed to pay $350 million, part of which will flow to every state in the next two months, and most of which will be used to fight the overdose crisis. It's the first advertising company to reach a major settlement over the toll of opioids in the U.S. Separately, Hikma Pharmaceuticals agreed to pay $115 million in cash and provide $35 million worth of an overdose reversal drug to state, local, and Native American tribal governments. And now these news briefs. Austin. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Thursday he never told his staff to keep his cancer diagnosis, surgery, and hospitalization secret from the White House but acknowledged he should have handled it differently and apologized. Lead, a second contractor, said Thursday it reached a $25 million settlement over its role in the lead-contaminated water scandal that officials say caused learning disabilities in children and medical problems among adults in majority black Flint, Michigan. Senate, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Thursday that the Senate will hold a test vote next week on legislation that would pair new U.S. border policies with war aid for Ukraine and other American allies, despite skepticism from Republicans and some Democrats. Trump, a local, pardon me, a London judge Thursday, threw out a lawsuit by former U.S. President Donald Trump that accused a former British spy of making shocking and scandalous claims in the 2016 so-called Steele dossier that were false and harmed his reputation. Strike. More than 200 staffers with the Chicago Tribune and six other newsrooms around the U.S. began a 24-hour strike Thursday to protest slow-walked contract negotiations and to demand fair wages. And finally, unemployment. The number of Americans filing for jobless benefits rose last week to the highest level in 11 weeks, though layoffs remain historically low. Applications for unemployment benefits climbed to 224,000 last week, an increase of 9,000 from the prior week, the Labor Department said Thursday. And as we turn to sports stories, we do have one story in college basketball. Nebraska storms back to beat number six Wisconsin from Lincoln, Nebraska. Nebraska came back from an 18-point second-half deficit to knock off number six Wisconsin 80-72 in overtime on Thursday night, the second top-ten opponent the Cornhuskers have beaten this season. Rink Mast scored early in overtime. Pardon me. Rink Mast scored early in overtime to give the Huskers the lead for good, and when time expired, the students spilled onto the court for the second time this season, 
The first was January 9th, when the Huskers beat then number one Purdue 88-72. C.J. Wilcher scored 16 of his 22 points in the second half. Mast finished with 20, and the Huskers improved to 6-0 at home in the Big Ten. It was Nebraska's biggest comeback since erasing a 19-point deficit against Iowa in 2013. Since 2000, Wisconsin had been 120 and nothing when leading by 15 or more points at halftime. A.J. Store matched his season high with 28 points to beat the Badgers. <clears throat> Max Klesmit and Chucky Hepburn had 13 apiece. The Cornhuskers were down as many as 19 in the first half, but were able to come back as Wisconsin, which shot 55% in the first half, dipped to 36% in the second, and got sloppy with the ball. In the NBA, Reeves fills scoring void as Lakers surprise Celtics. From Boston, Austin Reeves scored a season-high 32 points and hit a career-high seven three-pointers to help a Los Angeles Lakers team missing LeBron James and Anthony Davis stun the Boston Celtics 114-105 to on Thursday night. James sat out because of a left ankle injury and Davis was sidelined by an Achilles tendon issue and left hip spasms. Reeves was 7 of 10 from beyond the arc. He also was fouled on one of the misses and made all three free throws. The Lakers hit 19 of 36 three-pointers, holding off the NBA-leading Celtics to end a two-game losing streak. (laughs) D'Angelo Russell added 16 points, 14 assists, and 8 rebounds for the Lakers. Jackson Hayes had 16 points and 10 rebounds. Knicks 109, Pacers 105. Jalen Brunson scored 40 points and shook off an apparent eye injury to make the go-ahead basket with 1 minute 46 remaining as host New York won its ninth straight. Hours after being voted an all-star for the first time in his career, Brunson scored 11 in the fourth quarter to rally the Knicks in a game they trailed by 15 points. They had surged back to take the lead, then fell behind 100-99 when Brunson crashed into Andrew Nemhard in the backcourt, laying on the court and holding his face as Jalen Smith picked up the loose ball for an uncontested basket. But with his left eye appearing swollen, Brunson drove into the lane on the next possession and scored while being fouled, with baskets by Devante DiVincenzo and Precious Achiwa, following to make it 105-100. to Di Vincenzo scored 20 points and Deuce McBride had 16. Isaiah Hartenstein had 12 points and 19 rebounds and Achiwa finished with 12 points and 16 boards for the Knicks. Cavaliers 108, Grizzlies 101. Donovan Mitchell had 27 points and 7 assists as visiting Cleveland beat Memphis for its 4th straight victory and 12th in 13 games. Jaron Jackson Jr. led the Grizzlies with 25 points. Santi Aldama had 18 points and 9 rebounds. And Vince Williams Jr. scored 17 points. 76ers 127, Jazz 124. 
Tyrese Maxey scored a career-high 51 points as Philadelphia held on to defeat host Utah and snap a four-game losing streak. Laurie Markkanen had 28 points and 10 rebounds for the Jazz, who lost their third straight. In other NBA news, All-Star Game Reserves announced from New York. Cowhee Leonard and Paul George of the Los Angeles Clippers were chosen as All-Star Reserves Thursday, while Minnesota and New York also had two players selected. Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns of the Western Conference-leading Timberwolves will be going <clears throat> to the February 18th game in Indianapolis. Stephen Curry is an All-Star for the 10th time, while the Lakers' Anthony Davis and Devin Booker of Phoenix rounded out the West Reserves. <laughs> Jalen Brunson was selected for the first time and was joined by teammate Julius Randle from the Knicks, who went 14-2 in January. The East had two other first-time selections in Philadelphia's Tyrese Maxey and Orlando's Paolo Banchero, with Cleveland's Donovan Mitchell and Boston's Jalen Brown joining them. Embiid to miss time with left knee injury from Philadelphia. 76ers center Joel Embiid has an injured lateral meniscus in his left knee and will miss games at least through the weekend. Embiid sat out Thursday's win at Utah and also will miss a game Saturday against Brooklyn. Knicks. Julius Randle will miss at least two weeks with a dislocated right shoulder, knocking the New York forward out at least through the All-Star break. Randall was hurt Saturday after a hard fall on a drive to the basket late in the Knicks' victory over Miami. Grizzlies. Memphis plans to retire Mark Gasol's number 33 jersey during its April 6th game against the Philadelphia 76ers. And the NBA stat of the day, point one. Entering Wednesday's game against his former team, Milwaukee's Damian Lillard was averaging 25.1 points per game, just .1 points per game less than in his tenure with the Trailblazers. And now this uh, from the NHL. All-Star Weekend has fresh look. Input helps breathe air into League's showcase event. From Toronto. In the aftermath of the 2023 NHL All-Star Skills Competition that was confusing, disjointed, and went off poorly in the arena and on television, Gary Bettman asked Connor McDavid for his thoughts. The long-serving commissioner wanted to know what the reigning MVP, face of the league, Edmonton captain, and the man widely considered the best hockey player in the world, thought about the annual event. Several conversations with McDavid and other stars later, this All-Star Weekend features the return of some past traditions with the hope of putting some fun back into it. Back is the popular player draft, which took place Thursday night with Captains McDavid, Austin Matthews, Nathan McKinnon, and brothers Quinn and Jack Hughes picking their teams for the All-Star 3-on-3 tournament Saturday. The skills competition Friday night has a new format with just 12 players participating and a focus on old school events like hardest shot and fastest skater. I think the new format's cool, Matthew Barzal of the New York Islanders said. It's a pretty good indication that the NHL's trying to get more creative and keep it fun. 
Oh, and the winner gets a million bucks. McDavid, Matthews, McKinnon, Barzal, Toronto's William Nylander, Edmonton's Leon Dreisettel, Colorado's Kale McCarr, Boston's David Pasternak, and Vancouver's Pedersen, Quinn Hughes, and J.T. Miller will each compete in four of the first six events. Those are fastest skater, hardest shot, accuracy shooting, one-timers, passing, and stick handling. NHL Chief Content Officer Steve Mayer said the goal is to be the test of a true hockey player. It's also designed to go quickly and remove some of the weirdness of last year when events were split up and it was hard to follow. We've heard comments that we weren't sure what was going on, Mayer said. I think what we've done, uh, that story just got cut off. Around the League League defends itself over diversity. Toronto. NHL executive Kim Davis says the league has made progress on the diversity front in response to criticism from a member of the Hockey Diversity Alliance. Former player Akim Aliou told the Canadian press he's disappointed in how Davis and the league have not taken advantage of their chances, echoing comments he and current player Nazem Kadri have said about the HDA's fractured relationship with the NHL. I've been in the business of change work in major corporations for over 40 years, said Davis, who was hired in 2017 as executive vice president for social impact and growth initiatives. I don't need to be affirmed by Akeem. What affirms me is progress. The point at hand is young people and growing the game. Lindholm learns of trade mid-flight. Elias Lindholm was on his way back to Calgary from a trip to Mexico when he learned he had been traded to NHL-leading Vancouver. When he arrived at All-Star Weekend on Thursday, a new Canucks jersey with his name and number 23 on the back was waiting for him. It was a welcome sight for the pending free agent who expected a move for quite some time. I was prepared for anything, Lindholm said didn't know when or what team and didn't expect to be traded in the air back from Mexico, but I'm super excited to join this team and pumped to get going. And the NHL stat of the day, 40%. ESPN heads into the All-Star break with momentum. Ratings are up 40% over last year with an average of 560,000 viewers for the 17 games on ESPN and ABC. We've got one story in golf. Busy off course, Cantlay shines on it. PGA Tour board member one shot off lead at Pebble Beach. Doug Ferguson reports from Pebble Beach, California. Patrick Cantlay has spent about as much time on the phone as the golf course this week as a PGA Tour board member trying to nail down a deal for a $3 billion investment. It didn't seem to affect his day job at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. On a surprising day of weather when umbrellas gave way to sunglasses, Cantlay saved par five times and had eight birdies at Spyglass Hill for an eight under 64 that left him one shot behind Thomas Detry of Belgium. Detry worked his own short game magic at the end, chipping in from thick, damp rough for birdie on the 18th at Spyglass to finish with three straight birdies and a 63. 
Torrey Pines winner Matthew Pavon had the best round at Pebble Beach, closing with four birdies over the last five holes for 65. Roy McIlroy, no longer on the PGA Tour board, but offering eye-opening comments this week that LIV golf players should be able to return without punishment, was among the leaders until it all fell apart at the end at Spyglass. He was leading at six under, coming off five birdies in seven holes when he three-putted for bogey, and then on the par five at seventh, he drove into trouble and took a penalty drop by going some 20 yards back on his line and then moving one club length to the right. One problem, that rule was changed to allow that in 2019 and then changed back in 2013, pardon me, 2023. McElroy was supposed to drop on the line between his ball and the hole, so the two-shot penalty turned his bogey into a triple bogey, and he shot 71. I wasn't aware that that rule was changed again in 2023, so I took a drop thinking of the 2019 rules when everything was changed, not knowing that the rule was changed again in 2023, McElroy said, so got a two-stroke penalty there. The 80-man field, the strongest and smallest for Pebble Beach, which is now a signature event offering a $20 million purse, was mostly happy they weren't drenched from a forecast that suggested even more rain on top of the 1.5 inches that dropped overnight. The vibe wasn't quite as festive without entertainers from Hollywood and the music industry. The amateur field also was cut to 80, most of them from the NFL if they weren't running Fortune 500 companies. Detry had 10 birdies by keeping the ball in play off the tee, key on a week of players being able to lift, clean, and place their golf balls in the short grass. The chip-in certainly helped. I felt pretty comfortable. I would put it within three feet, to be honest, Detry said, and it rolled nicely, just trickled in the hole. It was lovely to watch. And finally, one story from Auto Racing. F1 great Hamilton leaving Mercedes to join Ferrari in 2025. Lewis Hamilton shocked the motorsports world Thursday when the seven-time Formula One champion said he will leave Mercedes at the end of the season to join Ferrari, which had tried to land Hamilton before he signed his latest contract extension with the Silver Arrows. Hamilton only finalized a two-year extension with Mercedes at the end of August, Mercedes said Thursday the 39-year-old British driver has activated a release clause in that new deal that will allow him to join Ferrari in 2025. I have had an amazing 11 years with this team, and I'm so proud of what we have achieved together. Mercedes has been part of my life since I was 13 years old, Hamilton said in a team statement. It's a place where I have grown up so making the decision to leave was one of the hardest decisions I have ever had to make. But the time is right for me to take this step, and I'm excited to be taking on a new challenge. Hamilton moved from McLaren to Mercedes in 2013 and won six of his seven titles with the Silver Arrows. His 103 race victories are an F1 record, but his last win was in the penultimate race of the 2021 season as Mercedes has struggled to get its new car up to speed against rival Red Bull. Hamilton will finish his run at Mercedes alongside current teammate George Russell. He will be teammates at Ferrari with Charles Leclerc, who in December agreed to a long-term extension. 
And that does it for this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, February 2nd. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening.